The Advent of History and the History of Advent by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum So part of what I want to do today is, is to offer some reflections on history and on Advent. Advent, it's a penitential season, but it's a season of great expectation. Liturgically, it's a time when our expectations are the greatest, our concerns over our unreadiness are uh, poignant. Are we feeling excited anticipation about the future? Well, I don't think we are, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Christianity has always had this open-ended, excited prospect of the future, uh, an, what's called an eschatological vision. We don't realize that we live in history. We live in history much more profoundly than we live in California or in the United States or on the planet Earth even. We live uh, in history in a very profound way, in a way that shapes our imaginations constantly. What we don't often realize is that that is a unique experience. Not everybody has. History has a history. It comes from someplace. Most of our ancient ancestors didn't live in history. They lived in a world that was cyclical, repetitive. Their constant concern, their religious concern, their ultimate concern was to repeat exactly what had been done in the past. So history has a history. History started at some time. And now you and I live in it, so much so we don't even know it. We're like fish in water. We think everybody does. But it has a beginning. And if you want to turn to a literary text that would say something about that beginning, obviously the one to turn to would be the call of Abraham. A God, in a sense, calls Abraham and says, Look, Abraham, I'm tired of watching you people go in circles. I want you to leave your cultural context which is, in fact, the world of circles, the world of the mythological psyche, what Nietzsche called the eternal return. I want you to leave that world and come on out in, into the desert where you and I can get to know one another, where you can get some feel for what it is that's beckoning you and to move in a direction which will make the increased beckoning possible. So there's the beginning being called out of one's cultural context into a world. Abraham says what we all say at that moment, which is, where are we going? Where are you taking me? And God says to Abraham, never mind. You see, that's part of it. That's part of it. It's expectation. You see, Come out, we're going someplace new. We are not going to go around in circles anymore. There is a horizon towards which we are going to move. And it is a, 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 a horizon which has to do 
with the growing intimacy between the called and the caller and the historical consequences of that intimacy. That's history. Now, history comes out of the Bible. The Jews invented it, you could say. They didn't invent it. Uh, it became, it, it was the byproduct of their attempt to hearken to the God who was calling them out of the mythological world. Here's what Nicholas Verdayev, the Russian philosopher, theologian, has written. The world may be considered from two viewpoints. For one, the world is first of all cosmos. For the other, the world is first of all history. For the ancient Greeks, the world was cosmos. For the ancient Hebrews, the world was history. Greeks and Jews lived in different times, not at different times, but in different times. This is the dispute as to whether man is to be comprehended from the cosmos or cosmos from man. Berdaev writing in the 30s. Berdaev continues, Is the meaning of human existence revealed in the maelstrom of cosmic life or in the events of history? In other words, in order to understand humanity, do we need to understand the cosmos? Or, in order to understand the cosmos, do we need to understand humanity? Is the key to understanding everything, cosmic processes, or the human mystery? Berdayev says in another place, quote, a philosophy of history could never have arisen among the Greeks because of their cosmic-centered concept of the world. For them, the golden age was in the past, and out of this came their gift for creating myths. They had no hope oriented toward the future. A philosophy of history could arise only in connection with a messianic eschatological consciousness which is the consciousness of the biblical Jews. Something is happening that's new. It's both new and contiguous with what has gone before. That is to say, it's a process. So we don't realize how profoundly that sensibility has shaped our lives. Every time you pick up the paper, that's why you pick it up. <laughs> Every time you turn, into, turn on to the 6 o'clock news, that's why it's interesting to you. You see what I mean? That's why we have this interest in history and in what's happening. Otherwise, it's just, it's just daytime TV. It's just a melodrama. It's a soap opera going around in circles. But because we know, somehow we know that it's not that, that there's more, we are interested in what's going on in history. And our interest correlates positively, I think, with our expectation of something that is both new and promising. That is to say, we are Advent people. See, we are Advent people. We're expecting something promising, even in very problematic circumstances. You see, uh, 
Advent takes us right into terrible things like the slaughter of the innocents and the cross so that there are all kinds of dark things. But the Advent spirit is that something is at work here that explains even those dark things. Now, beginning with the Renaissance, really, but in a more marked sense uh, coming into play with the Enlightenment, this eschatological vision was reduced by rationalism, romanticism, all kinds of forces in the Western world. It was reduced uh, to the myth of progress. They say, what's happening is, oh, well, we're becoming more rational, more uh, conscious, uh, the evolution of consciousness. Uh, We're becoming more technologically uh, adept and so on. Uh, We're developing democratic processes more uh, uh, sustainable or whatever it happens to be, the myth of progress. Um, And in spite of the fact that there has been an enormous increase in many areas of the world, in all kinds of things, technologically and socially, the myth of progress has imploded. When I graduated from high school, everybody in my high school class knew for sure that the future was going to be better than the past. If you go into a high school today, you don't find it. You don't find it. The secularized version of the eschatological promise Uh, in a sense, killed the goose that laid the golden egg. You can't secularize it uh, because it's ultimately eschatological. It's ultimately the mystery that comes out of the biblical uh, journey with the God who called Abraham and who incarnated in Christ. That's what gives that historical expectation its, its power and its mystery and its indestructibility. And when that's abandoned and uh, the shell of historical expectation is inhabited by some secularized idea about what's happening in history, it's only a matter of time before it runs out of steam. And it has run out of steam. Now, I say we are Advent people, which means we pick up the paper, we think, something's happening here. And as you know, that's what I do. I pick up the paper and I think, surely there'll be evidence today. And lo and behold, there was yesterday in the New York Times. So I want to read you a story that appeared in the New York Times yesterday, which is not a story but a book review uh, by uh, Mikiko Kakutani, who's the best reviewer for the Times. She's reviewing a book entitled Nightmare of Main Street, Why Americans Gorge on Gothic by Mark Edmondson. Now, only those of you who have teenagers know about Gothic probably, but Gothic is, a, uh, is part of the contemporary youth subculture uh, and it's a fascination with dark, death-like, haunted things. Uh, the, the kids who are into gothic, they have their own musical uh, repertoire and they, 
and also the the uh, the style is uh, pasty faces, dark uh, fingernail polish, lipstick, uh, dark eyes, black clothes, uh, a kind of living in this world of of negative. Uh, it's taking cynicism to the extreme. So this man has written a book on it because he he sees that it's historically significant. Now let me interrupt myself here and say something, and I hope I doesn't take too far afield. At the end of the 19th century, some of the great uh, thinkers in the West, somewhat independently of each other, began to talk about resentment. Nietzsche talks about he blames it on the Christians. He's always half right. He's totally mad, but he's always half right. Kierkegaard says it's the constituent principle of the modern age. Uh, Dostoevsky's novels are all about it, and so on and so forth. And a little bit later, Max Scheler writes, uh, thematizes it in a book called Resentiment. All these people at the end of the 19th century were looking at something that was socially marginal and historically significant. Now, today, you don't have to be a genius of the caliber of Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard to see that resentment is, is historically significant today. All you have to do is read about road rage or walk down a high school corridor, you see, or look at the divorce statistics or look at the, the how litigious we are, uh, how cranky we can get with each other, and so on and so forth. You don't have to be a genius to notice it. At the end of the 19th century, you, you had to be more of a genius to notice because it was so much more marginal socially these people noticed it was historically significant, even though it's marginal. The thing that corresponds to that at the end of the 20th century, and not only corresponds to it, but is actually linked to it causally, is nihilism. Nihilism is socially marginal, perhaps not as much as we would like to think, because there is a nice white-collar version of it. Uh, but it is historically significant. Nihilism is a religious phenomenon. It only happens in a post-Christian world. There's no other form of nihilism. Nietzsche, though he occasionally railed against it, invented it. Nihilism is a post-Christian phenomenon. It's a religious phenomenon. It's the attempt to turn meaninglessness into religious meaning. And it's happening in our world. And it's related to Gothic. See, this, this man's understanding of this little, one little eddy in the historical flux, which is the Gothic fascination, is really an, his, his attempt to take a reading on what is a larger phenomenon of nihilism in our world. So anyway, that's the, that's the context in which he, he offers these things. So uh, I, I want to just quote from uh, the review, from Kakatani's review, and she quotes at length from uh, Edmondson's text. Um, she says, The Gothic purveys a distinctive vision, a dark, pessimistic view of the world as a place in which time present is shaped by time past. Gothic thrives, Edmondson argues, in a world in which cynicism is a given. And cynicism he defines as, quote, the conviction that the worst truth that you can come up with about any person or event is the most consequential truth. There's a kind of half-baked Freudian stuff here. That is to say that your dark, petty, 
unscrupulous impulses are more true than your noble ones. You see what I mean? That's it. That if you talk about those, you've gotten to a deeper truth than if you talk about aspirations of a noble sort. That ethos is all over the place. Kakatani quotes from Edmondson, Into the century, American Gothic is often motivated by a drive to turn back the clock and by the decline of faith in a benevolent, active God. And here's what Edmondson says, quote, There is something to gain in accepting the harsh belief that the world is infested with evil, that all power is corrupt, all humanity debased, and that there is nothing we can do about it. With the turn of the contemporary Gothic, no fault, dead end, politically impotent though it may be, we recover a horizon of ultimate meaning. We recover something of what is lost with the withdrawal of God from the day-to-day world. With the Gothic, we can tell ourselves that we live in the worst and most barbaric of times, that all is broken never to be mended, that things are bad and fated to be, that significant hope is a sorry joke, the prerogative of suckers. The Gothic, dark as it is, offers epistemological certainty. It allows us to believe that we've found the truth. So, uh, Kakatani goes on. Coexisting with contemporary Gothic is what, is what Edmondson calls, quote, the culture of easy transcendence, exemplified by the movie Forrest Gump. This pop transcendence is a degenerate form of Emersonian optimism. Emersonian optimism was a degenerate form of Christian hope. So we're, we're having, you know, <laughs> increasingly thinner and thinner versions of this thing. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, pop transcendence is a degenerate form of Emersonian optimism, a belief that one can move on, move past, move through all traumas, that one can shrug off the shackles of the past. It is manifested in the Pollyannish belief in angels and the proliferation of self, self-help self gurus and 12-step programs, end quote. Uh, the, ease, the, the culture of easy transcendence was very probably, in the general sense at least, the culture of the parents of the kids who have now found Gothic their home. You see what I mean? Christian hope has a withering effect on both optimism and pessimism. And, and here you have a, ver- a, a contemporary heightened version of each. Pessimism degenerating into the Gothic and optimism into this culture of easy transcendence. Each is an aspect of Christian hope that has, that has thrown away its connection, you see, and has spun off into these into these places. So, uh, Edmondson says, productions like Forrest Gump, by the way, I loved Forrest Gump, and I loved especially another movie which is even better than Forrest Gump, though. It's interesting to me, Sling Blade. Uh, It's interesting to me that Forrest Gump, Sling Blade, and there's a French film uh, very similar to that, and I can't think of the name of it. They all, it's it's like... uh, it's like uh, Dostoevsky's uh, The Idiot. Uh, that is to say, there is a figure who is exempt from resentment. And we're so amazed that there could be a person 
exempt from resentment that we assume that it has to be a mentally deficient person. (laughs) And what we love about these people is that they don't have any. And therefore, they're not playing any of these games. And we think, my gosh, this is amazing. Like Billy Billy Budd's a little bit that way. That's right. So, um, but it shows that we're longing for exactly that. So, anyway, here's what Edmondson says. Productions like Forrest Gump and the Angel Books invert the Gothic. But in another sense, facile transcendence reinforces the culture of terror. The very insubstantiality of the easy transcendent scenarios, their status, acknowledged even by some of their consumers as simple wish fulfillment, testifies to the absence of plausible hope for many Americans. End quote. So, there is a socially marginal aspect of American youth culture, which I would say we can all hope and pray it will remain socially marginal, become even more so, Nevertheless, it's historically significant. Something like that happens to historical consciousness when it loses its contact with the eschatological vision which made the idea of historical progress uh, existentially intelligible. So Advent needs be an attempt to recover, reclaim, the eschatological hope. And there's only one way to reclaim it, and that is to reconnect with the religious heart of it. And so that's what I would like to reflect on. I want to share with you remarks on this subject from two of my favorite theologians. Uh, One is uh, Henri de Lubac, French theologian, and he says this, is it really necessary to conclude that up to these recent centuries, quote, he's, he's obviously, I can't remember what text he's uh, arguing with here, but he's quoting from a text that he's disagreeing with. He says, is it really necessary to conclude that up to these recent centuries, quote, humanity had dwelled in nature and was still not detached from it, end quote. In reality, de Lubac says, rather than animal innocence was this not on his part, his being humanity, man's, was this not on his part the deliberate refusal of history, deliberate though admittedly still instinctive refusal of history? And was this refusal not explained by the desire not to let himself lose contact with the archetypal beings whose gestures he reproduced? Now this takes a little unpacking. We're talking about archaic religion here. We're talking about the gods and goddesses of archaic religion. Uh, To enter into history is to lose contact with them, precisely because the world out of which God called Abraham is the world of idolatry, the mythological world. And the refusal of history is always ultimately driven by a return to idolatry. And so de Lubac is saying, what is, when we look back in human past, what we see is this enormous refusal of history. It's not morally culpable refusal because any more than to say that our ancestors who sacrificed and, and uh, who used the scapegoating mechanism to generate their social solidarities and all the rest of it, to say that they were morally culpable. They weren't. 
on the cross, Jesus looked at them all, so to speak, and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They literally didn't know what they were doing. So to say that our ancestors were refusing history doesn't mean that they were doing a bad thing. They didn't know what they were doing. Nihilism is a post-Christian phenomenon. That is to say, when you refuse history on this side of the Christian revelation, that's when it becomes culpable. That's when Nietzsche's eternal return becomes an unbelievable recipe for catastrophe. I'm kind of talking in shorthand here, but I want to try to massage it as we go along. It's a refusal of history. And then de Lubac says, this refusal of history uh, was driven by a desire not to lose contact with these mythological forces. Christian revelation, by making such scruples pointless, says de Lubac, freed human development. It allowed us, therefore, to redeem time. He's quoting Eliot. It allowed us, therefore, to redeem time and consequently to accept it, to change what seemed to be only a principle of corruption and erosion into an instrument of progress. It allowed us to break out of that and enter into history with hope, eschatological hope. So, and my other favorite theologian is uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Swiss, Swiss theologian. He says, the act of corresponding to what God wills for world history is the central core which makes history happen. I love these little lapidary statements that you have to say them about ten times in order to begin to get it. But ponder this if you will. The act of corresponding to what God wills for world history is the central core which makes history happen. Did you see what he means? Uh, trying to hear the God who's calling us into history is what makes history history. Our attempt to respond to that call is history. But that call has competitors. That is to say, with whom or what is God in competition when he calls us out of our circular world into this process? What is it to which we correspond when we fail to correspond to what God wills in human history, in other words? And it is idolatry. And it is all the stuff that we've talked about so often, which is the thing that Gerard has revealed for us, and that is this whole business of sacred violence and the scapegoating mechanism and all of that. And I'm not going to get into it today. We're here to talk about Advent. Well, I am going to get into it because I'm going to tell you a story about that. Because we have to understand how powerful that thing is and how subtle its operations and how easily it can export itself into any historical venue and manifest itself in ways that seem absolutely new, declare itself to be the newest thing in the world and reconstitute itself instantly. And when we are drawn into it, two things happen. We abandon our historical responsibility. We abandon the great hope that comes from an eschatological vision. We fall out of history. And more and more of us are falling out of history. You know, everybody was so afraid that, uh, and, and of course it will, that, that the year 2000 would produce all these uh, apocalyptic maniacs, you know. And it will, surely it will. But for the most part, who cares? 
What's amazing is not that it's producing apocalyptic maniacs, but because but it's not producing anything. You see what I mean? I mean, maybe people worry about what might happen to the market on the week before or something, but it's not. You see what I mean? <laughs> the idea that something might be happening in history is so ludicrous to most people that it has no purchase. The year 2000 has no purchase on us. So what I would like, I just want to do a quick, ridiculously quick, this is like the reduced Shakespeare. You ever see these guys that go around and do this reduced Shakespeare? The history of the call. Uh, the call that comes to Abraham is a call to leave. And the call is always mediated. And God is merciful, always gives us, and we're, we're always dim-witted, can't see it, don't understand it. It's just as true of us as it was of Abraham. So we're constantly, it's constantly having to be mediated through something. So for Abraham, uh, it, well, for the, for the, uh, it's always a call out of captivity. It's always an emancipatory call, emancipating us from a captivity, the nature of which we don't understand. Maybe we understand if it's Egyptians, you know, or something very harsh, but for the, our ultimate captivity, we don't, don't understand. So he calls us out. And it's usually mediated by something, a kind of carrot, you know. And the mediation might be, how about land? <laughs> how about land? If you make it there, you can have this land. And in, in acquiring that land, you can have an, a little sacrificial scenario. You can have historical enemies that you can hate and kill. You see what I mean? Uh, but then the land becomes problematic because no matter where you go, there you are. And you bring the sinfulness with you. And so then it becomes uh, the kingdom or the temple and ultimately becomes the law. And the law is... That's why the Jews treasured the law so much because the law made them free. We late 20th century people, we should wake up to that. But we're so... We were so scandalized by that idea. The law made them free. They were so happy to have the law. They didn't fall into madness so much because they had the law. And they realized God had given them the law. So it was mediated. This call was always mediated by something. Land, promise, kingdom, temple, law. And then after the cross, Paul understood sin takes advantage even of the law. Because the law tells us what to do, what not to do, and what to do to keep from going crazy. But transgressors of the law give us a golden opportunity for going crazy at their expense. In other words, sin takes advantage of the law. The law itself can't do it. So we're constantly being called in history by these mediating uh, forces. And in each case, each time we move from one to another, we become... Uh, we develop more conscience and more consciousness. The two words are really synonyms. So another thing we don't realize, that they're synonyms. Conscience is always bad conscience in the first instance. It's always a recognition of what I've done in the past. And that's the real measure of consciousness. Can I look back and see what I've done wrong? That's the That's the little you know, the little eye chart test that you get from consciousness. It's not whether or not how many angels you can imagine on the head of a pen or something like that. 
It's how clearly can you look at your own past or at the past. To be in history means to be in history in the biblical sense means to look back with contrition and forward with hope. To look back. That's why Advent is a penitential time. So it always involves a growing consciousness and a growing conscience, which moves us. We move because we say, hey, we can't stay here. This isn't, this isn't right. This isn't what we were called to. We weren't called to this. How do we get stuck here? What's that call again? You see? So we move always like that. And what I would like to do, to take one of the most incredible themes in the Psalms and reflect upon it in terms of Advent and history. And the theme is, if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Just reflect on what that might tell us about how to live in history, what it means to live in history, what the spirit of Advent is, and what the temptations are to bail out of that and spiral back into some modern glitzy form of idolatry. The word florilegia comes from the term florilegium. A florilegium is a literary genre which is now out of fashion uh, in which texts are uh, gathered together and assembled in such a way as to, to tell a story or to sound a theme. Uh, and each of these texts uh, says something about the theme uh, that n- no one of the texts completely exemplifies, but all of them taken together begin to throw light on something and it comes into focus. And sort of that's what I do. And I was just looking down at these notes that I'm about to uh, share with you. I was just thinking of of that again because I... Typical of me lately. Uh, I haven't really had time to go over these. I like to write little notes on my notes, and I haven't written any notes on these notes. And uh, so they're just more or less raw in the sense of being sequential here, page 17 or whatever, following page 16. But uh, it's a collection of text, a collection of stories, that stories with a small s that tell a story with a big s, and uh, quotations that uh, throw some light on it. And so what I wanted to do in this journey towards uh, a reclaiming of the spirit of Advent and reclaiming of a sense of history uh, is to begin with this wonderful psalm, uh, verse from the Psalms. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. We've all heard that. It's a very uh, beautiful Uh, verse, but you're probably like me, it never occurred to you, perhaps, it didn't occur to me until recently, that there may be some causal relationship here. Uh, That is to say that our hearts are hardened when we hear the voice. In other words, it's a warning that's not a general warning, which is, oh, try not to harden your heart. But try not to harden your hearts precisely at the moment when you probably will when you hear his voice. In other words, there's a resistance to this call. 
And the resistance is in us and among us. It's, we're implicated in this resistance. It's the law of gravity. And we tend to recoil from this call. So I want to reflect on that a little bit using a story. And it's a story from the Book of Wisdom, which is an apocryphal text. Uh, it's in the Catholic Bibles and not except in the Apocrypha in other Bibles. Uh, it's from, as I recall, I haven't looked at biblical scholarship in a while, but it's second century uh, before Christ. It's a very interesting text uh, in part because it talks about uh, people who scapegoat. Now, I'm not interested in the scapegoating qualities of this text because I've talked about scapegoating for years. What I'm interested in is that uh, the people that this text speaks of, the godless ones who make a pact with death, are at the same time refusing history. And I want to use that phrase from the Lubach quotation I shared with you earlier as a way of taking another reading on this text. So uh, here it is. It begins this way. The godless call with deed and word for death, counting him friend. They wear themselves out for him. With him they make a pact and are fit to be his partners. End quote. Now remember I spoke of nihilism and the Gothic. These are trends in our culture, still socially marginal but historically significant, uh, which have begun to fetishize death, in part out of a desperation for transcendence. If you secularize everything, if you level everything, there's one thing you cannot fully secularize. Guess what? Death. And if in the world where you have secularized everything else, there's this one little thing left over that you have not fully secularized, those in whom the hunger for transcendence is awakened, which is latent in us all, will gravitate towards it. And they will play with it as a little machine for generating some kind of meaning. And they may play with it in a terribly crude way, the way the Gothic subculture plays with it, uh, or ways that are tremendously tragic, the way some of, the, the, some of those caught up in this Gothic thing, uh, the, the teenage suicide rate is high and so on, it's terrible. Or they may play with it in very sophisticated ways, the way, for example, Martin Heidegger played with it. Arguably the most brilliant philosopher in the 20th century who marks the end of philosophy and who talks about being toward death. You see. Or we may play with it in the way that Ernest Becker played with it, in the course of which he generated enormous insights. Nevertheless, there's a kind of fetishizing of death that this is who we are, you see. And one always has to remember in there Paul, who says, death, where is thy sting? See, opens out beyond that. Nevertheless, 
what interested me here is that starts off, this passage starts off talking about the godless and leaping over all of the, all of the connecting links to the end, which is that they are making a pact with death. They wear themselves out for death. At the first, they don't even know this. As you'll see from the text, at first, there's so much like the process that moves towards death. Almost always, if it sweeps enough of us into it, begins in a kind of carnivalesque mode. It begins with the, what seems to be, as it does in, in uh, the Baki, it begins with what seems like just letting your hair down and enjoying things, but it moves towards death. In this morning's New York Times, there's a story about a, an assisted suicide by Dr. Kevorkian that took place in a Catholic church. Whether it actually did or not, nobody seems to know. But the fact, you see. So the text goes on. They, that's to say the godless ones, say to themselves with their misguided reasoning, by chance we came to birth, and after this life we shall be as if we had never been. In time, our name will be forgotten. Nobody will remember what we have done. Our life will pass away like wisp of cloud. You see that? This is... It's uh, chapter 2 of the Book of Wisdom. Our life will disappear. We're here only for the moment, you see. Uh, the sense of being connected with something that's durable. Let me leap, if I may, to something that... What, what uh, Aquinas says is that uh, there is something in us that, is, that longs for a truth once connected with which it shares in that truth's indestructibility. There's a longing in us for a truth once connected with which we share in that truth's indestructibility. So, here you have people who have completely lost touch with that and who now are in a world with no history, no sense of something going on that is from outside of history. History only makes sense because we're in touch with something outside of it. As soon as we lose touch with that which is outside of history, history itself collapses. And here are people who've lost touch with that and therefore their life is just like wisps of smoke, which is a very powerful and very prevalent biblical metaphor, theme, leitmotif recurs over and over in the biblical literature, particularly in the prophets and in the Psalms designating insubstantiality, the insubstantiality of a life of idolatry or of uh, indulgence or something like that. So these are folks who are living in that world. And I was talking about fetishizing death and so on and so forth. There's a wonderful, again, I'm just a catalog of quotes, really. There's a wonderful thing from uh, Sebastian Moore, who's really quite amazing. Sebastian Moore is the one who says there's only one way to find out for sure whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? Asking. <laughs> he says, Death as ultimate horizon 
Let's sin make as much sense as sin can make. Death as ultimate horizon. Let's sin make as much sense as sin can make. So these people in this text in wisdom are people who have, for whom death is the ultimate horizon and who draw the obvious conclusions. They say, quote, Come then, let us enjoy what good things there are. Use creation with the zest of youth. Take our fill of the dearest wines and perfumes. Let not one flower of springtime pass us by. Now, I wouldn't quibble with one word of that. I think that's the way we should live. I do. But there's an, there is a motive in this text for that. You see, which destroys the very thing that it's moving toward. So I'll read the whole thing and add the line. Come then, let us enjoy what good things there are. Use creation with the zest of youth. Take our fill of the dearest wines and perfumes. Let not one flower of springtime pass us by. Before they wither, crown ourselves with roses. Before they wither, crown ourselves with roses. Suddenly you see there's a kind of haste involved in this merrymaking. <laughs> Something is chasing it. The withering. Let us crown ourselves with roses before they wither. Let none of us forego his part in our orgy. Let us leave the signs of our reverie everywhere. In time... And this goes back to the carnivalesque stage, which eventually gives rise to the sacrificial stage where things turn nasty. Uh, and this, you, there are so many elements in contemporary culture that you could, you know, take <laughs> take some of the lyrics of the music that we all listened to in the '60s and listen to some of the lyrics in the '90s, and you see that things have turned a little sour. In time, our name will be forgotten. Nobody will remember what we have done. Our life will pass away like a wisp of cloud. Let us lie and wait, therefore, for the virtuous man since he annoys us and opposes our way of life. The very sight of him weighs down our spirits. Let us test him with cruelty and torture and thus explore this gentleness of his and put his endurance to the proof. Let us condemn him to a shameful death. Suddenly... All of this bouncy stuff turns into some kind of snarl and contempt for the one who's not partaking in it. Who is the one who is himself in touch with something else and therefore is in no need to grab at those roses before they wither. You see what I'm trying to say here? It's, and it's this, this, what I want, I want to use this text to think about refusing history. Refusing history and finding ourselves in this situation where we see, oh, well, it's just, this comes to nothing. Let's be stoic. And the stoic pose doesn't last. It lasts for a while, but eventually it turns into this. There's a nihilistic uh, lining to that stoic pose. So what these people do, and it's a marvelous text, and we've actually used it here to explore how this move from the carnivalesque to the sacrificial happens. I don't want to do that so much now 
Rather, I want to talk about it in abstract terms and then talk about the cross and then talk about history. Because as Christians see it, uh, history has a center. And uh, the center is the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. So I want to talk about that. But I want to move from the this text to a kind of abstract description of the process whereby we refuse history, which is to say the process in response to which we are drawn back in to some enclosed world, enclosed world of idolatry and, and myth. There's a passage in the New Testament which is echoed in the Eucharistic liturgy in the Catholic tradition, I think, in most high church uh, uh, Eucharistic liturgy. The liturgical text is at the moment before Eucharist is distributed, the host is elevated and the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to this banquet. And that's a very precious moment. Now, the the New Testament verse that gives rise to that, one of them, the most powerful one for me, is in John's Gospel when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in the Eucharistic version, you have uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John's Gospel's version, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin." of the world, singular. So we should think for a minute about sins and sin. Sins with a small s, plural, and sin with a capital S, singular, and ask what their relationship is. Because if Jesus took away the sins of the world, it's not obvious. But that he took away the sin of the world is clear. And that's what we I'd like to think about for a second. Now, what are the sins of the world? The sins of the world are all the things they are, envy, covetousness, rivalry, jealousy, pettiness, uh, the nastier ones, you know, murder and theft and so on and so forth. But it begins with, as Rene Girard would say, mimetic, the, the whole problem that mimetic desire generates, rivalry, envy, jealousy, and so on. Sebastian Moore, sin is seeing my life through someone else's eye. One plays this social game, and in the social game, one gets caught up, and it seems like it's it's melodrama, it's soap opera, it seems real, and I'm completely I'm completely preoccupied with whatever the little deal is that's going on. I get caught up in these sins form a kind of vortex; they swirl. And uh, they get us caught up in them, and and they're they're not big, heavy, dark, you know, skull and crossbones kind of sins. They're just this petty stuff, and we swirl in them. And if we have no anchor, no 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 rope outside of that world, no fixed reference, the swirling goes on, and we are getting swirled down into uh, a more ver- vertiginous forms of this social craziness, social slash psychological craziness, all the while. So imagine a vortex that begins with great sweeps of of a cycle and then it sort of tightens and tightens and gets faster and 
and more frenetic and more more fixated and more preoccupied and more uh, the more lost and confused we are, the more certain we are that we're on the right path, that we're doing what we need to do, that this is it, that this is the most important thing. And as that swirls and swirls and swirls, there's a point at which, and it happens just like the thermostat coming on, the social temperature gets, social psychological temperature gets a certain level, and accusations bubble up. It's, the whole thing is filled with accusations from the very beginning, little subtle accusations. But they become more potent as it goes down. The accusations that are latent become explicit and begin to circulate in this mix as rumors or as uh, floating allegations, uh, as a, a kind of gathering anger towards... And the, the towards whom begins to have a focus... Uh, and rumors build, and passions mount, and the thing goes on and on and on, and it gets down to the bottom, and at the bottom, it's swirling with such an intensity that everybody caught it, the people caught up in it don't know they're caught up in it. It seems like the eye of the storm. seems perfectly clear. Everything is certain. We know exactly what has to happen here. Uh, there's a kind of clarity. And then something absolutely miraculous. So this is, the, hist- this is the, the, the pattern of sinfulness. Then something absolutely miraculous happens. It, interrupt myself for a second. If you go back in ancient history, this is my one little uh, indulgence in this. If you go back in ancient history, everywhere you find culture, you find an altar of blood sacrifice at the center of it. In other words, you find evidence that these cultures have resorted and if you, if you have any evidence about that altar of blood sacrifice, it will tell you that they are reenacting the founding of the world. The world was founded when an event structurally identical to this sacrificial bloodletting happened and brought this community together. In other words, that's the, that's the founding mechanism. And what I'm saying is this, these sins swirl around, swirl around, swirl around until finally they drive. If there's no interruption... If it runs its course, it's like the law of gravity. Simon Weiss says it's like the law of gravity. It runs its course, and we end up doing something absolutely miraculous. All the sins are tra- at the bottom of that vortex are magically transformed into righteousness without ever producing the first moral misgiving on the part of the mob. And then the crowd goes home completely cured of its sin, transformed, feeling righteous and at one, at peace with each other. So that's sins with a small s, plural, swirling and swirling and swirling and swirling and swirling and getting finally down to the pit of that vortex and transforming themselves into righteousness. That transformation is sin with a capital S singular. That's what Christ took away. That's the sin of the world, which means the sin that made the world possible, that made conventional culture possible, that gave the sinfulness that purged people. Every religion in the history of the world has been about the business of taking away the sins of the world. That's what all religions do. 
And the question is, how? And the answer is, and this, com- this answer comes to us from the biblical text and is made intelligible to us thanks to uh, René Girard. The answer is that we take away the sins of the world by falling into the sin of the world, the sin that makes all of that possible. And the cross is the expose of that whole thing and therefore is the beginning of a historical process of taking away the sin of the world, which is to say it's the beginning of a process of having our own sinfulness register as such so that we hear the cock crow. We hear the voice on the road to Damascus. We don't, we're not allowed to purge ourselves of it without ever, ever having become contrite. Contrition now becomes the key, as I said in the book, to Christian lucidity. Now, there is a tremendous resistance in us to this because these reflexes, psychological and social reflexes, predispose us to get rid, getting rid of our sins in this way. And we resist the revelation of the cross or the truth of the cross. The real question today is, what is happening in history? Next time you're at a cocktail party, ask somebody what they think is happening in history. And if they say one damn thing after another, that's not history. What is that? You see, the question is, is anything happening in history? And what I want to try to show, it's right there in the Bible and in all around us. What's happening in history is the coming of Christ. Now, let's, I, didn't, I should have waited till the end to say that. But we resist it. Now, in the New Testament, before the cross, the disciples of Jesus did not have the benefit of the revelation of the cross. The disciples were 25 watts in dimming. They didn't get it. So, for example, in Luke's gospel... Uh, Jesus says, and you can feel a little desperation, not desperation, you can feel a little exasperation in Jesus' voice in Luke's gospel when he says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. See, as though, oh, please try to get this through your head. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. This is one of those passion predictions. They're all over the, the, the pre-passion gospel. And they don't get it. And here the text says, but they did not understand this. They didn't get it. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not understand it and they were afraid to ask him about it. Its meaning was concealed. Something was concealing its meaning. You see, they're still living inside the world that the revelation of the cross shatters. And so it's a perfect, you know, you could parse the sentence. It's a perfectly intelligible sentence, but they couldn't understand it. And they were afraid to ask him. They didn't want to know. They knew enough to know. They didn't want to know anymore. What is this? This is the refusal of history. Because what this, what is happening and what he's trying to call their attention to is what is happening in history. That is to say, the truth about God is breaking through our 
resistance to it. And it's breaking through exactly at the place where the resistance is most powerful. I said the vortex that begins with small s sins, plural, ends with capital S sin, singular, at the bottom of that vortex. That's the place of the cross. Jesus goes precisely, rendezvous precisely with humanity at that place and breaks the mechanism by revealing it for what it is. Looking at the crowd and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a refusal of history. This, the, the pre-passion disciples refuse history in a kind of a passive way. They refuse it by not quite understanding and not wanting to know any more than they already know. The refusal however, becomes after the cross, the refusal becomes more explicit and more culpable. You see, when when de Lubach says, our ancestors, if you really want to understand our ancestors, don't talk about they lived in nature. Recognize the fact that they were refusing history. And then he says... It was an instinctive refusal. You know, we can't hold them morally culpable for it, but they were refusing to come up out of that, out of, uh, that vortex of, of myth and idolatry that made their lives meaningful. We can't blame them for that. Uh, they were inside of it, but they were refusing history. The, the disciples refused history in a sort of passive way. After the cross, though, it's become explicit. Now the refusal is culpable to the extent that the cross has broken in on it and had its uh, revelatory effect then it becomes more explicit for example in John's gospel Jesus says if I had not come and spoken to them they would not have sinned now that I have come they have no excuse for their sin if I had not done among them the works that no one else did they would not have sinned and this is Johanna and Jesus he's talking both before and after the crucifixion and resurrection what he did among them was the passion, fundamentally. And he says, without that, they wouldn't have sin, but now they have sin. So the next thing that happens after the cross in the New Testament is or the next, I should say, the next thing that's structurally identical to the New Testament. You know, Balthazar says, history is a, an inexhaustible reservoir of Christian situations. It's an inexhaustible reservoir of Christian situations, one after another Christian situation. What's a Christian situation? It's the passion story. It's that vortex of sin coming down into some uh, sacrificial climax over and over and over and over again. Variations, different characters, different uh, justifications and so on and so forth. The next one after the Passion in the, New Testament, in the New Testament is the stoning of Stephen. And I won't get into it, except what's important is that Stephen is revealing to them the, cro- the truth of the cross. He is saying to the Sanhedrin, you saw everything but your own complicity, your own culpability, the violence that, that, that was the glue of our history. You didn't see the violence. And um, therefore, can you name a single prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? And they say to him, so to speak, I'll ham it up a little bit. He says to them, you've always persecuted the prophets. And they say to him, no, we have not. And he says, yes, you have. And they reach for stones. Do you see what I mean? Do you see that? It's right like that. What is this refusal of history? 
Because this is what's breaking in on us. This is what's breaking in on us. But when, when they begin to close in on him, grinding their teeth, he suddenly is in the Holy Spirit and uh, has what Andrew McKenna calls the victim's epistemological privilege. And they start to close in on him. And then and he begins to, expl- to tell them what he's seeing. He sees the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But, quoting from the text, they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed toward him, dragged him out of the city and stoned him. Covered their ears. This is what I wanted to come to. You see? Covered their ears. That's when the refusal becomes culpable. The refusal of history is the refusal of this revelation that is, bre- that is breaking in on us in a manifold a variety of ways. After the crucifixion, the refusal generates its own undoing. At the moment Stephen is stoned, those who are stoning him have thrown their sweaty garments at the feet of a young man whose name is Saul, who approved the stoning. And the next thing we hear about the young man whose name is Saul is that he's on the road to Damascus and he hears a voice calling him a persecutor. In other words, once the word is out, every attempt to expel the truth of the cross is structurally identical to the event that let the truth loose in the world. You see what I mean? The, any attempt to expel this truth re capitulates the passion story and recreates its dynamic, which is there's always a remnant that gets it. And the remnant, those who are the remnant are those who write the text. In other words, history is no longer written by the winners. It's written by those that have been liberated from this thing. This is a little bit of a confusing journey, uh, but what I wanted to show is something comparable to what Balthazar says uh, when he says the following. History is itself an area of freedom. Within this space, man is free to make history happen. But since this space belongs to Christ, it is in no sense an empty space but one that is shaped and structured and completely conditioned by certain categories. And these categories are, the pattern of these is the, is the passion story. Uh, it's breaking in on us, shattering the little mythic pattern that we tend to fall into, revealing its perversity, the piercing our conscience, awakening a contrite attitude towards the past and an expectant and hopeful attitude towards the future. Now, what does this have to do with Advent? Advent means the coming. It's expecting the coming. Uh, The term is related, of course, to the second coming. And so... To be Advent people or to be in Advent attentively is to be always conscious of the second coming. And uh, 
What is the second coming? The Greek word is parousia, which means being fully present. The second coming literally means when Christ is fully present, as opposed to when uh, he's present in a limited sense. Limited, let's say, geographically, like in Palestine, or uh, chronologically, like in the first century, or in, um, in a more diffused but limited sense, in the sense of working through those whose lives have been touched by his gospel, his revelation, his church, uh, his spirit, and so on and so forth. All of this is happening. And then the parousia is the full presence, the full and complete presence. In John's gospel, so I want to read a few things and think about what it means to be Advent people. In John's gospel... Jesus says, now judgment is being passed on the world. Now the world is in crisis. The word judgment is the word crisis. The world is now in crisis because the prince of this world is being overthrown. The organizing principle of this world is being destroyed. And the very next verse is, and when I am lifted up, meaning on the cross, and when I am lifted up, I shall draw all men to myself. Now, Elias Canetti, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 19, I think, 81, who was not himself a Christian, said the following, The image of him whose death Christians have lamented for nearly 2,000 years has become part of the consciousness of mankind. He is the dying man and the man who ought not to have died. With the increasing secularization of the world, his divinity has become less important, but he remains as an individual suffering and dying. The centuries of his divinity have endowed this man with a kind of earthly immortality. They have strengthened him, and everyone sees himself in him. There is no one who suffers persecution for whatever reason who does not in part of his mind see himself as Christ. What does this testify to? This testifies to the coming of Christ in the world, the Advent event. The legacy of Christianity, uh, Kennedy said, is inexhaustible, end quote. Eric Vogelin puts it this way, a gospel is neither a poet's work of dramatic art nor a historian's biography of Jesus, but the symbolization of a divine movement that went through the person of Jesus into society and into history. And Anders Nygren, the great Lutheran biblical scholar, did a study on uh, Romans, says, quote, the gospel is not the representation of an idea, but the operation of a power. When the gospel is preached, it is not merely an utterance it is something that actually occurs, end quote. So, in order to be in Advent, one has to feel that something is happening in history. Uh, and that this something is moving towards 
an eschatological horizon, which will be its completion. The reason Christians are Advent people is because we feel in our bones, and if we looked at it in the right way, we would see in history that this coming of Christ into the world is happening. It's actually happening. What is happening in the world is the desacralization of the old structures of sacred violence and the, a, an awakening of our empathy and our concern for victims, which all seems to be like to seems to be purely social and to have no particular religious content until you recognize what's making it happen. And why is it happening? Because Christ died so that we could fix the social world? No. But because that the cross, the the place of the cross, the a, a place structurally identical to the cross is where we go to turn our madness into what we think is lucidity, and to fall into idolatry, and therefore to be unable to recognize the living God. And as long as we have that, we will continue to be unable to recognize the living God, un- unable to hear the call, and stuck in some cycle that is not real history. So, the world is being desacralized of all those old forms of sacrality. We have concluded, therefore, since we think Christianity is just another religion, that it will be desacralized, that that religion will will be, be passe. It's not true at all. Religion now takes on a real consequence. The question is, can we bring about the desacralization in such a way as to intensify our religious lives? Uh, that's the real issue. Now, when pe- if people who think the desacralization simply means secularization, then we get into all the problems that, we, that I started today by talking about. The, the, the barrenness, the nihilism, the despair, the uh, lack of any kind of hope, and so on and so forth, which is overtaking us. Uh, and the the two poems I want to close with uh, speak of the two paths that are before us. Uh, one is the path, I said this nihilism or this uh, gothic thing or whatever comes in white-collar versions as well as blue-collar versions. Uh, Lewis Simpson, by the way, I like Lewis Simpson as a poet very much, uh, but uh, he says in this poem, which I've re- re- repeated so many times over the last couple of years, uh, but I like it because it says exactly the situation. He says, There is no way out. You were born to waste your life. You were born to this middle-class life as others before you were born to walk in procession to the temple singing. There is no way out. You were born to waste your life. You were born to this middle class life as others before you were born to walk in procession to the temple singing. That's a wonderful Advent poem, by the way. But it needs to have this other one with it, which is Seslov Milos. It is happening now. And those who expected lightning and thunder are disappointed. 
and those who expected signs and archangels' trumps do not believe it is happening now. It is happening now, and those who expected lightning and thunder are disappointed, and those who expected signs and archangels' trumps do not believe it is happening now. The despair in Lewis Simpson's poem, uh, there is something appropriate about that. Uh, it sets us up for the realization in Milos's poem that this second coming is happening now. It's breaking in on us. And if we only had eyes to see uh, what is so so laughable is we're constantly... Every uh, every generation, we are we are declaring the death of Christianity, and we have been for five hundred years. Uh, so we say, "Oh well, it's dying; it won't be around much longer." And then another fifty years passes. Oh well, it's obviously it's dying; it won't be around much longer. It's actually the driving force in human history. It's breaking in on us. It's unbelievable. That doesn't mean things are getting better. It means that the old props are being kicked out from under us means the ante is being upped. So Advent is still a penitential time, a time of expectation that's not altogether without an element of alarm in it. But if we could come back into that world where something really powerful is happening in history, uh, something that can be happening in us as it's happening out there, and for which we can become in some small way a contributing factor. It seems to me that would be the spirit of Advent. Basically, what I think is that the New Testament understands us better than we understand it. Jesus in the New Testament says, you think I'm come, I've come to bring peace? Just wait and see. What he's come to do is to take away the mechanism for generating the kind of peace that the world understands and therefore to sow discord among those who who do not find their way towards that other peace, the peace that passes understanding. So he says, those who do not gather with me will be scattered. That's a light, light motif in Luke's gospel. Those who do not gather with me will be scattered. Uh, we're living in a world where the old gathering mechanism has is being constantly deplete. It's, it's a it's a non-renewable resource. Every time we use it, there's less of it to use. That is to say, we gather ourselves together, and we're about to do it again. The point is, we can gather ourselves up, but it's the old gathering principle. There is a new gathering principle, and the new gathering principle involves, among other things, looking at this mess. Which is, you look out and you say, "Hey, look at this world! There, everybody's going crazy," you know. And to see in it the gospel at work. That doesn't mean that you then become comfortable with all that madness. But at least you don't despair and you know think it's you know, nothing's happening in history. What's happening in history is the gospel is doing what it said it was going to do. This concludes the advent of history and the history of Advent. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website 
at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.